Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today, I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Karin Martinson and Amy Berninger. Karin has 30 years of experience studying a wide range of programs and policies that affect low-income populations, with a focus on workforce development strategies. Amy has more than 10 years of experience supporting public health and health policy-oriented research projects for a range of clients, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. We know there's a strong correlation between poverty and unemployment rates and the prevalence of prescription opioids and other substance use disorders. Amy, can you set the stage for us and talk a bit about these relationships? Sure. We know that the opioid epidemic has impacted people of all different ethnicities and all different socioeconomic classes. And there's definitely a correlation between poverty, unemployment rates, and the prevalence of opioid use or misuse. Research has found that counties that have worse economic prospects are more likely to have higher rates of opioid prescriptions, opioid-related hospitalizations, and drug overdose deaths. Given that, it's really no surprise that um, areas that are more rural have been particularly hard hit by the current opioid epidemic because there tends to be fewer economic prospects in those locations. This has also made the current opioid epidemic kind of unique. Historically, social minority groups have been the most impacted by similar epidemics. And in rural areas, around 80% of the population is white. So we kind of have this unique epidemic of opioid use among white rural, rural Americans. And one question that makes us think about, you know, this kind of makes us think about is whether or not poor economic conditions help to really kind of propel the current opioid crisis. You know, are people using opioids because there are fewer employment opportunities, are they bored, do they kind of have a bleak outlook on life, yeah. or is there something else going on? And that also leads to the question, how can we improve employment opportunities in these areas and among those groups that have really been impacted by the opioid epidemic, not only as kind of a preventative measure, but also as a facilitator to recovery and a part of treatment, um, particularly in areas where there are already so many other inherent barriers to you know, prevention, treatment, and recovery efforts. Right. Uh, Karen, do you want to talk a bit about how you know, opioids are affecting and impacting the workforce? Because um, it's, it's sort of a chicken and egg, or it's like a vicious cycle, right? Right, exactly. Um, uh, opioid uh, epidemic has uh, resulted in a negative impact um, both for employers and society as a whole. There's been lost wages, lost productivity, increased health care costs. So it's really impact kind of how employers operate and their ability to be um, as efficient as possible. They've had to um, make adjustments sometimes because of the epidemic, instituting drug testing, um, support groups. So you see a lot of issues going on at employers and kind of how to adjust, kind of how to hire and kind of keep employees given um, the crisis going on. Right. So what are some strategies we've got then for sort of bridging that gap, right, between the challenges to employment and then the need for employment to keep people in recovery? Uh, in the past, you've actually seen a pretty strong divide between the treatment community and kind of the employment mm -hmm. workforce community, where you went into treatment and you would focus on that um, and go into recovery. And there'd really be no connection between coming out of recovery and finding a job. I think more recently, in part because of the opioid crisis, but also just 
because of a range of other factors, people are beginning to see employment as part of recovery, and that if you have a job, it can actually help you maintain um, your recovery, keep you connected to something, keep you part of a community. Right. So there's really been an effort to bring these services together. Also in the past, you saw that the, a lot of the funding for these like treatment and employment services came from different agencies and different got the typical kind of siloed funding right. that didn't integrate. Right. So now they're, um, I think in part because of the opioid crisis, has been a real effort to kind of bring some of this funding together, and it's resulted in a whole range of new programs that are really focused on helping people in treatment um, move to uh, recovery and stay there. I think another issue, though, that makes it hard is that people in recovery – you know, as Amy said, they're in kind of low-income communities. They tend to have a lot of barriers to employment. You know, they're a substance abuse disorder. They tend to have low skills. There's not a lot of jobs. So, you know, a lot of them have criminal history, maybe resulting from their opioid use disorder. So there's a lot of barriers that programs have to address. So it is pretty challenging to bring all these components together. You know, Lynn, like Karen said, um, you know, there there are a lot of barriers, and there's, there's limited services, and the services that are out there, you know, this hasn't really been a focus. So it would be helpful to, to kind of look at, you know, what is out there in terms of services and how can we kind of build on what already exists and expand so that there's, you know, more comprehensive treatment options that incorporate all types of recovery support services, um, including employment, for individuals, particularly in the lower income and you know rural areas, we are focused on the opioid crisis, and that did bring a lot of things to the forefront, and it brought more money into the system that allows us to do these things. But there are a range of substance abuse disorders sure. um, that people are working on, and opioids is just one of them. Usually, these programs treat multiple. Um, types of substance abuse disorder because um, you actually find that people can abuse more than one type of drug. Um, you also hear pretty consistently in the field that because there has been some crackdown on opioids, that crystal meth is kind of increasing. So, mm. it, you know, it's a really evolving and challenging field um, for uh, practitioners um, who are on the front lines. And it's, you know, it's been difficult for them to you know, address the shifting um, landscape and all the the um, issues um, that are come at them pretty rapidly. Right. So let me ask both of you, uh, based on what you just said, Amy, you know, what are some some approaches we might want to take for those programs? And, Karen, you're talking about how different agencies are starting to talk to each other. What direction do you think we should be tacking in? Well, I think we see a lot of interesting things coming out of the field um, because it is a new area. I think it's an important area for the field to kind of, you know, that's they're the experts, right? They're kind of the program operators. They've been there on the ground. And we see a lot of different program models um, emerging, and we're actually in the process of evaluating um, how they work and cool. kind of which ones might be most effective. I think, you know, that you do see programs. Um, some are, are based in residential treatment programs. Mm -hmm. Like if you really are in... In crisis, you can go into a residential treatment and get, you know, kind of inpatient and outpatient services. And it's kind of bringing the employment services into those settings, and that's one approach. Right. Um, we also see approaches that um, kind of more are outside the treatment center where people, 
in recovery come in and say, you know, I really want to find a job, and they help them provide the employment services, they support them through their, their treatment, and they may provide more connections to employers um, that are helpful. A lot of these programs might kind of work with them, because, you know, employers can be resistant to hiring someone with <laughs> a substance abuse problem. Right. So they actually do sometimes work with closely with employers to kind of help do some screening and say, this person would still work for you. Um, you know, we can kind of get around these issues. Um, so you kind of see, like, that type of model. We've also, as I kind of said earlier, see em some employers doing innovative things themselves, trying to support people in treatment and kind of providing more services at the job. Right. Um, so there's different ways of doing it. Um, and I think because it is so new, um, we're still really looking at uh, kind of how they can work best. Right. Uh, are, are we doing any clearinghouse work in this area? Should we be? You know, we've kind of, as part of this national scan, we've done reviews of kind of the existing studies out there. Um, I mean, there's not a lot. It's been a, it's a very new area, yeah. this kind of integration of employment and treatment services. A lot of the studies have been pretty small scale. Um, a lot of the programs are really small scale. Yeah. So uh, part of the issue is um, bringing programs to scale. I think the opioid crisis, like, you know, this problem has been, you know, substance abuse disorder has been around for a while. Um, I think just, you know, over the decades, we've sure. seen alcohol, crystal meth, you know, opioids is kind of new, but it really kind of expanded the numbers and expanded the need. So there's really been a push on kind of scaling up and as a result, also building evidence on what works because it just hasn't really been there in the past. Got it. Uh, so what do we, like what's next, for, how, how do we get that evidence base? You know, what can we be doing to sort of help build that foundation of data to work from? Well, I, I think it's hard, and I think one of the issues that kind of comes up is it it's hard to get, you know, really high-quality randomized controlled trials to kind of prove that something works because when you're dealing with a, a group of people who have substance use disorder, you don't want to randomly assign, you know, somebody to treatment or no treatment or uh -huh. one group or another, so that makes it kind of difficult to prove the effectiveness of some of these interventions. So just kind of building up and having, you know, creating opportunities to, and, you know, programs that are designed with the, I guess, the evaluation component in mind. We want to evaluate more programs in order to demonstrate the effectiveness of these interventions so that, you know, we have I guess, for lack of a better term, more tools in our toolkit that, you know, providers can use when working with folks who are suffering from substance use disorders or opioid use disorders or whatnot. Got it. Got it. I think that regardless of, and this is just my opinion, whether or not something is, is you know, proven to be evidence, you know, an evidence-based practice or, or whatnot, um, you know, certain things are going to work for certain people, and I think it's just most important that people end up getting the services that they need, mm -hmm. um, whatever those might be. It is a somewhat new area. The focus really is on building the evidence and learning from what is going on in the field and right. the scaling up effort. So I think that is where APT is focused, mm -hmm. is on building evidence on effective practices and getting those lessons out to the field. But I also think there are um, just kind of operational lessons about 
um, things people have learned about bringing these services together, different settings that it would work, the issues to make sure that you can address. And I think those are all um, just important lessons that we can um, can focus on um, while we are um, investing now in, in really developing evidence-based practices. Well, here at APT, you can never go wrong when ending with evidence-based practices. So on that note, thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect. Karin and I were recorded live at App Studio One in Rockville, Maryland. Amy joined us from our Cambridge, Massachusetts office. 